This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. When we talked about the submarines last time, did we talk about how Yellow Submarine by the Beatles was like me and my dad's song? Oh, that's cute. He used to always he used to always sing Beatles songs. <laughs> um, I like played them on the guitar, but in particular Yellow Submarine, I remember from when I was, I must have known it and recognized it from when I was really, really young. So it always makes me think of my dad. Did you discuss the fact that Yellow Submarine is one of the worst Beatles songs? Uh, it's true. It actually isn't it. But for a, for like a three-year-old, it it works, you know. Like it's kind of like a Wiggles song. It's like a Wiggles Beatles song. Yeah, yeah it's like Octopus's Garden. That one too. Yeah. yeah. Do you think they were thinking about $368 billion nuclear submarines when they wrote that song? Probably. That's where we're all going to end up living. Because climate change is going to just kill us all and drown everywhere, we are just going to end up living in these fucking things. Just, <laughs> yeah. just you, need to be, you need to be in the exclusive mm. list. This I is couldn't, the man, solution this. to the housing crisis. <laughs> we are all going to live in a yellow $368 billion submarine. We all live in a... No? I just, I, I, actually, I actually can't even this week. Like, this was I just the most can't. depressing... Fucking and we 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 weren't we discussed whether we should talk about this as an issue yeah, on the show, but we're, we're just like, going to talk about it because say? it's like, what can you actually fucking say? We said this was shit at the time. Now it's actually yeah. happening. The Greens have no power to stop this. The U.S. <laughs> imperial war machine is impossible to seriously confront at the moment. Pre- present material conditions being what they are, and now these fucking psychopaths in the Labor Party and all the hacks and defenders will stare you in the eyes and say that this is exactly what Stop we need, and there's Tom. nothing wrong with spending this amount of money. While at the same time, this week UNICEF released a report that one in six kids in this fucking country—I'm knocking even my camera—are living yeah. in poverty. <laughs> Fuck them all. Yeah, um, but it's Scott Morrison's fault somehow also. <laughs> like it is, but you cannot do it. Yes, it is. It is all Scott Morrison's fault, according to my friend and yours, PR Guy 17. This this mm. to me is the most cooked take from him or tweet I've seen, and that's a very, very high bar. That's a high bar. Wasn't this guy going to get off Twitter? Wasn't that the whole point that he was quitting? Or so he was going to reveal who was he was he? and then fuck off? I thought he was just revealing himself as like the most boring human. <laughs> like, what a fucking letdown. PR Guy 17 tweeted, In the middle of a cost of living crisis, Australians are waking up to news today. They'll be slugged a further $368 billion for the Morrison government's bungled oh. Sumbarede contracts. Bungle. The subs could take 40 years or more to be delivered. This is your gut. This is who you wanted. This is your fucking mates. Yeah, I'm confused. I'm really confused. It's is the you. problem? It, and isn't the implication as well that, like, I think there's this idea that's like, yeah, we would love war, like more war machines, more expensive war machines, but the fact that it's going to take too long to get them and the contract <laughs> isn't so as good as it could be, like, this is a bad business negotiation did yes. you put you put it here that the estimate is 268 to 368 billion can you imagine you're negotiating someone you're like yeah it's 268 billion give or take 100 billion you know sorry give it yeah give or take 100 billion hugh white who's like you know seems to be one of the few academics who's sort of saying hey maybe war with china would be terrible is saying if you're off by 100 billion dollars you actually don't know how much this is going to cost you have no, no fucking idea no 
idea. The the regularity, I mean, this is obviously on a whole other scale, but even it reminds me of the Queensland government with the Gabba Stadium demolition where they're going to fucking shut down a state school for the Olympics. Yeah. And initially they were like, yeah, it'll cost like around a billion dollars. And then later they're like, actually, I don't know, maybe trillion, maybe 1.7 billion, 2 billion. And it's like, that's a, that's a big difference. There's no, <laughs> as it's come out, like no one knows where they got that initial billion dollars from. So it's like they just pulled it from thin air. And now they're like, yeah, well, we said a billion, but, you know, infl- inflation. You're like, look, inflation's bad. It's not that bad. <laughs> like it's oh. not almost an extra billion dollars bad. Well, I mean, there haven't been, you know, examples of material, uh, you know, military projects blowing out in cost and time before. Uh, I can't imagine any. Or the Olympics. Yes. Yeah, usually famously on budget. I love this because, of course, I got into this with people on Twitter like a fucking moron that I am. I got into an exchange with Reply Guy 18363, which, (laughs) well, at least I appreciate the honesty that someone's like, that's who I am. You're above this. And I loved it. I went through his whole feed, of course, and he was just he, – he, he literally doesn't post anything. He just replies to people. So he is oh, consistent. Oh, like I 18363, yep. But there was a story about how the cost of the submarines before the big announcement was $200 billion. Yeah. And people saying, gosh, that seems like too much money. Mm-hmm. And this guy tweeted, that's only 20K per household. That's the price of a Corolla for security. Okay. What? <laughs> So it's just like every household of the country paying, buying a new Corolla and Which we do that. Which is what you would we, do if you had 20 grand, right? Like oh, every Yeah, household that's struggling would be like, thank you, now I can get my Corolla, not like <laughs> I can feed my children. <laughs> like I, I can get safe. that dental work that I need. I can get my Corolla. But I love that tweet because it's like, okay, it was actually $368 billion, so you now need to revise up how much money you'd have to spend. Oh, yeah, what can you get with... Whatever, 38000 Like, I don't know cars, but it would be a, a slightly better car, I guess. Cars are pretty expensive now. Yes. But it's just to me, like, people defending this deal, what is your number? What what, what figure mm. would have to go on these things at which you would say, okay, that's actually too much money. That's actually ridiculous now. A trillion dollars for these submarines, that's actually a little bit silly. But, no, there is no number because there is n- just a bottomless pit of money for, for fucking weapons for us to go and, and face the illusory threat of China because that's all these motherfuckers care about. Okay, heaven forbid that we spend money on our citizens to make life better here. No, no, no. Let's go to war. I've said it before. I was like, Paul Keating is vaguely right. He's vaguely fucking correct. This is fucking ridiculous. We've said it, folks. We stand Paul Keating. I'm going to do you slowly. I'm going to slowly drive this fucking country into collapse and I'm actually doing it quicker than expected because I'm the Labor government. Boom, into the intro. (laughs) (laughs) The Greens are looking to do reasonably well and I just urge people, whatever you do, vote Labor, vote Liberal, vote Nationals, vote One Nation, vote Shooters, do not vote for the Greens. Frankly, I've always found the Greens to be a real serious danger to Australia. (laughs) Serious danger to Australia. Serious danger. I'm very angry. I'm in Adelaide, right? I'm surrounded. I'm in the home of the subs. It's it's just all around me. Adelaide. Just for all these jobs are going to arrive. I mean, that's sorry. That's the other thing. Before we get into the show, this fucking jobs program angle that it's like three hundred sixty-eight billion dollars. We get twenty thousand jobs. It's like fuck you, motherfucker. Good return on investment, either. That's you know how many jobs we could create. Fucking investing in like 
renewables and manufacturing expanding the health sector and education fully funding our fucking state schools anyway yes uh, building homes that we need to live in that's a that's building a one. subs for if china decide to make the call it's over guys <laughs> you're right tom we shouldn't we shouldn't talk about the submarines this is serious danger a podcast about green politics in australia i'm emerald and moon that's tom ballard <laughs> This is not an official Greens Party podcast. It's made possible with the help of the Green Institute and producer my Michael Griffin. And this week, we are checking in on our friends in New South Wales ahead of the state election, which is happening, wait, next Saturday? Next Saturday, the 25th of March? That's 2023? Yeah. Really snuck up on us. We are going to have um, a special guest, the New South Wales Greens candidate for the seat of Summer Hill, Isabella Antonio, to talk about their campaign, which... They're telling me they're like it's. They, I don't know if they've got campaign fever, but they're like, look, one of the most winnable. It's potentially the most winnable seat in the state. <laughs> I'm excited to hear why, um, and excited to hear just generally about what's going on in New South Wales. Uh, we should welcome new patrons, uh, yeah. new people getting on board the Serious Danger family. Thank you to Morgan, Dion, L. Brookscrew, Joe. Tony Pinko, who I love. <laughs> I love to. Hey, I'm Tony Pinko. Hey, serious the danger. No, that's, yeah, sorry, Italians. And someone called, well, the landlords won't kill themselves, you know. Hmm. Sure, we'll take that. Uh, for just three bucks a month, you become a patron. You get bonus content. Uh, we've released some great episodes of late. We did one on uh, International Women's Day. We've got more in the pipeline. Well hmm. worth your while, just three bucks a month. That's, that's great value. Or $4.20 a month if you're funny and spicy. $6.66 a month even if you're better. But Toby and, a- Toby and Annika both edited their Patreon money recently to $4.20 um, because this is not an official Greens Party podcast. Righteous, y'all. Um, thank you very much to all the Danger Dogs who have been, that is the name of uh, Serious Danger listeners, who have been coming to see me. Danger Heads. Oh, Danger Heads. Okay, that works too. Uh, if you're coming out to see me on, on the road, I appreciate it. I'm at the Adelaide Fringe at the moment. Emma came along to the show and said, I'm a serious Danger listener and patron. She hit me up on Instagram afterwards. I believe you and Emerald are both the funny one. Enjoy Aww. Adelaide. Isn't that sweet? That is cute. It's very cute. Cute. Isabella, a.k.a. Izzo, Antonio, whose name we fucked up in the intro, and <laughs> it is Antonio and not uh, Antonio. Uh, so Izzo is a youth worker. She's a writer, a proud young Cypriot woman, and the Greens candidate for Summerhill in Sydney's Inner West in the New South Wales state election, which is next weekend. Izzo, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you both for having me. So we initially had, like, we've had Linda June on to talk about the New South Wales state election before. We wanted to do one other episode before the election actually happens and I was persuaded by a message from your campaign manager who was saying that she reckons Summerhill is potentially the most winnable or maybe one of the most winnable <laughs> seats in, in the state. And on the numbers, because there's a very high Labor vote um, and we would need to kind of take chunks off the major parties to win this, it's still up there, but it'd be hard. So I'm curious to know why... 
why it feels that way. Yeah, sure. So brief introduction to what we're calling Hot Girls Summer Hill. Um, <laughs> people trying to make fun of Hill happen, but I'm refusing to let that take hold. Um, it's we're really in a really interesting position, actually, because if we look at the last state election, of course, it looks like we're sitting at like 19, 20% of the vote, which we wouldn't usually see as, you know, putting that winnable, putting more in that future winnable uh, target. But we actually did a bit more of a deep dive into the data, looking at, of course, the most recent federal election and the council election, which were pretty back to back off one another over the past two years. And we've actually realised if everyone who voted Greens just votes Greens again, it's only an extra 3,000 votes that we need to flip to actually get Summer Hill to turn green and put us in that two-party preferred race. Um, and that's kind of where this excitement is actually coming from. We've seen these really interesting shifts over the last four years that has changed the demographics of the seat, that's changed the game. We've seen um, an increase of renters, so we're currently at, currently at 45% renters in the electorate. We're also seeing a bunch of young families who traditionally were living kind of more in the Newtown electorate, which has been green for quite some time now, being pushed out. And I don't say that as an idea of like, oh, only Greens voters are in a city, you know, latte sipping, that kind of whole beautiful image that we seem to can't shake. But it shows that, you know, these are people who've had a Greens MP, who voted Greens before, who understand what a Greens MP mm. can do, moving into or well, being pushed out of their communities into the more of the fringes of the inner West. We've also had some redistribution of the borders as well, which apparently nobody knows about. I've been door knocking and it's the first thing I say to some people and they're like, oh, I'm in a completely different electorate now. That's great. Thanks, uh, <laughs> Electoral Commission, for letting me know. But those border shifts have actually pushed us more into Western Sydney, so the Kennedy <laughs> Bankstown LGA, which is traditionally quite working class, but also um, has a whole wealth of people who are very pro-Greens policies, but have never felt that they could vote Greens because they felt like it was going to get pummeled by major party votes, which now isn't the case. Mm. Pretty good case. That's a pretty good case. It's I gotta say, good, you got I, some facts you know, there. I've got the TED talk ready to go. There is a PowerPoint at any given yeah. moment when someone goes, <laughs> "Is this winnable?" Um, and it's really interesting seeing people's faces light up when you tell them it's only three thousand votes, really. Yeah. yeah. A hundred percent. And that's one of the things that, I mean, I know from, from our experience campaigning in Queensland, we have learned, and we've talked about this a lot, that one of the key things we need to do is convince people that it's winnable and actually having a clear number, uh, you know, that, that would get us to that win and an explanation, a pathway to that win can be exciting, not only for the campaign and the people involved in it, but for voters who thought that they could never have a Greens representative and who, yeah, might have been thinking that it would have been a wasted vote um, to actually rethink that. And, I mean, I'm, I'm interested as well because I have been hearing that um, Hot Girl Summer Hill is like one of the biggest door knocking campaigns because it's not, yeah, I mean, just to, to look at those numbers again, like the Labor vote, was sitting last time at like 46.4% and we were at 20.6%, I think. And there was a, you know, a bit of a drop because there was Keep Sydney Open, et cetera. And that's, that's harder than seats like Lismore on the numbers, but you've been doing a shitload of door knocking. 
And we know that's how we win, right? <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. Well, was, was everyone not aware of that? It was how we win. It's simply by <laughs> knocking on the doors. Um, I feel like I have such a claim to fame now. I've lo- lost a toenail. I've lost about three pairs of shoes and a toenail from door knocking. I will not be providing photos unless there is a donation attached. But, um, <laughs> that's a fundraising opportunity. It really you're, you're is. I don't think it's feet, That's good. <laughs> Auction. But yeah, so I've been basically door knocking every single week. We started door knocking back in October. I've been out every day since I stepped back from work in um, February, was trying to get as much as possible in uh, January as well. And even just over the last three months, we've hit about almost 3,000 doors and we're going to try and get another 500. Um, we're in a pretty, pretty decent position because we've just come off the back of a federal election where we were door knocking for Grainler quite consistently as well. So even though we didn't haven't door knocked everyone in this specific, you know, state election, there are a bunch of people in the electorate we hit uh, just in May last year uh, talking about similar things, talking about, you know, what it means to actually push um, a Greens voice in what is very often Labor heartland. Yeah. How many, so knocked on 3,000 doors and how many conversations have you had from those door knocks so far? Yeah, so... I haven't had all the stats yet. I'm waiting on the email to give us the biggest update, but my individual stats are actually a thousand of those doors. And my conversations are, meaningful conversations are at sitting about 40%. But when we do grab people, we have really high rates of meaningful conversations and really seeing that people are really swayable and really interested to hear what we have to say. And of course, there's plenty of other outreach that I'm doing. I'm literally just camping out at cafes to chat to people as they walk by, train stations, um, been chatting to parents um, during school drop-off and pick-up as well, and that's been a really interesting um, time. Love that. Because there's actually a little bit of space instead of someone rushing to the train, a parent can stop and have a bit of a chat. And we've seen mm-hmm. some like thir- yesterday was 37 degrees in Sydney and I was chatting to parents about um, air conditionings in all our schools, yeah. which Currently isn't the case. Uh, Asheville Public School, the PNC were chatting to me about how they've raised $17,000, but they need a hundred grand essentially to retrofit the building with aircon. And that's ridiculous. Mm, that's ridiculous sure. that any sort of like parents, friends, community are filling in the gaps of our state government mm. when it comes to, you know, providing safe learning yeah. uh, environments yeah. for students and safe working environments for teachers. But you know, we're in an education crisis in New South Wales and that's just one facet of it. Yeah, and this is the kind of stuff that you hear when you're actually out in the community and talking to voters and talking to, you know, people at schools and parents and that sort of thing and presumably then, you know, feeding that back into the conversations that you're having, like when you talk about seeing people's eyes light up when you, you know, uh, talk about being able to win, obviously that's going to then make you emphasise that in future conversations that you have. Um, and it definitely reminds me, yeah, like it seems, uh, I don't know if this is like a cocky thing to say, uh, being a Queenslander, but like you are taking like a lot of the Queensland principles. I know you had like Max down for a mega door knock, right? How was that? That was great. That was a great opportunity to kind of really let our new volunteers cut their teeth. Um, cause we have had quite a few people come to the Summer Hill campaign who saw the success in Queensland, didn't get in quick enough to join the the Grandler campaign. So we've been a really interesting kind of training ground for 
a lot of new fresh volunteers. It was great to have him around and get a feel for what the electorate was like. He knocked on a few doors as well to kind of get an idea of the sentiments around the place. And even he said, he's like, look, yeah, this is winnable. Chatting to, had some conversations and this is winnable, which is, I think, very affirming, uh, especially someone, you know, who's kind of been on the other end of it, been in the same position as me only a few months ago. But I think the main thing is it's actually having a conversations-focused campaign is actually how I do community organising anyway. So I come from a strong community organising background and I've had the pleasure of learning from um, amazing community organisers and activists from around the world, particularly those based in the Swana region, so Southwest Asian North Africa, where it is local conversations. Like I've recently worked with um, amazing artists called Art Lords who are usually based in Afghanistan, but unfortunately had to flee last year um, and in 2021 during the um, fall of Kabul. And their entire model was creating public murals that would turn into public town halls. Anyone can come up and paint and they'd start having these conversations with people. Anyone who came up, um, had a conversation, was able to take part in this arts-based practice. So having that kind of immediate feedback loop of humanity almost in those conversations that you take back, it informs your policy, it informs the way you're working with communities, makes Mm -hmm. such a big difference. And it's been proven time and time again internationally as best practice. Mm. And absolutely, you're right that, yeah, just a few months ago, like I know when you talk about door knocking, wearing your shoes out door knocking, I'm pretty sure Max also, yeah, like retired, had to retire some door knocking shoes. Um, so it's a good sign. Mm. <laughs> I can't afford this exchange right now. <laughs> I know. Well, that's why you need to get elected and you can afford some new shoes. <laughs> <laughs> shoes and rent. It's the bread and circus. <laughs> On the doors, like I, I know you were saying there's a lot of people talking, like a lot of renters in the electorate, like 45% of the electorate are renters, a lot of people kind of being pushed out of um, their, their old home and, you know, pushed to the fringes by the housing crisis. Is that probably like the number one thing coming up on the doors or what other stuff is coming up when you're talking to people? Honestly, look, cost of living crisis and housing is the big one that's just on people's minds at the moment. The minute you kind of show up and go, what's there? Even for people who you go up to the house, you assume that uh, they look like they're quite well-to-do. It is really at the forefront of people's minds, especially for their children, their grandchildren. Most of the time I end up feeling like I'm just doing my social work um, on the doors <laughs> when it comes to people telling me about <laughs> being kicked out, uh, having triple-digit rent hikes, the fact that they actually are not going to be able to vote for me even if they want to because they're now being pushed out of the community completely by just the lack of affordable housing, affordable rentals in the area. It really is the thing that's just continually on people's mind and it's their big stress point. That and, of course, everyone, I feel like every door knocker has this story that everyone has an issue with a tree. There's always a tree that local council could be doing more about. It's the great unifier. But look, cost of living crisis, um, schooling and education is a big one. But we're also finding um, access to healthcare and health support, particularly when it comes to nurse patient ratios, is a huge one currently. We're seeing huge walkouts uh, from nurses. We're seeing a huge industrial yeah. action. We're seeing us losing, you know, the backbone of our health system because of how overworked and underpaid our health staff are in New South Wales. We have some of the lowest paid health staff uh, in the country. Paramedics here are actually the lowest paid in the country. We're actually seen as uh, the paramedics training ground because there are so many vacancies. So people will 
in New South Wales learn, uh, get the training for paramedics and then move states where they can earn a much more sustainable wage. Uh, so we're just having this huge attrition rate as well. And, you know, the Paramedics Association has been undergoing industrial action for the past few days and will be from the 20 to the 25th of March up until the election as well. I want to, do you think it makes a difference who you are as a person in that, like you're a young renter actually experiencing these issues and for fear of, I mean, it's almost a cliche being like, I'm not your usual politician, but I think when you say that, that's, that is actually kind of true. Yeah. This is actually something I've kind of been thinking a lot about recently. I've really had to come to terms with being perceived in a very specific way and watched my own relationship to the idea of what a politician should be, who they should be, um, changed. Cause you, if you asked me four years ago, I would have said, I think all candidates, all politicians should be gray blobs and they're just their policies. Um, I don't think there needs to be that personal individual, uh, flair in there, which can sometimes distract from, you know, what they're actually talking about. And I had a vendetta against kitchen cabinet on ABC because of it. I felt it was too humanizing for politicians, but, um, <laughs> over the past few years, I've really had this personal shift seeing, you know, and particularly being a candidate over the last few months has really shown that people want to see people who've had experiences like them, you know, lived experience is, mm such a game changer in terms of just understanding the policy. Uh, the fact that I can talk about renters policy, housing policy, and then I go home and I live it. It's not just some flashy points that I've pulled up on a, on a press release. It's actually my life. The fact that I can look somebody in the eye and say, I'm dealing with this exact same thing. It is the thing that's going to keep motivating me is knowing that my community and I are in the same boat. Um, I don't have these kind of, you know, entrenched old practices around, you know, like placating answers and just ticking the box for people. I'm actually interested in seeing our community thrive, not just survive. And people are really responding well to that. I've had people who I wouldn't automatically assume were Greens voters. I wouldn't say we're in our tar- target demographic coming up, shaking my hands at a train station, being like, it's so great to see, you know, a young woman who's actually putting her money where her mouth is putting herself out there Mm. and fighting for things she believes in. I think people really do see not me as an individual, but what I represent being who I am as this kind of sign for change. It is who I am is very anti-establishment in a lot of ways beyond identity politics. Even just the way I interact and the way I work with people is relationally, uh, which is starkly different to what we see usually uh, from politicians and, you know, the establishment. So I think people are responding well to that. We're putting humanity back into it. I often always say, like, I know insecure work. I know um, insecure housing. That's why I know we deserve better. Yeah. I actually think that's such an interesting point. Cause like I get torn on this idea of, yeah, like the candidate having to be a particular identity, like a particular character and that being so crucial to a campaign. I tend to think it's far more important, the movement that they can rally behind them. And it's like, you know, it, it's incredible that you've been doing all this door knocking yourself, but also in terms of scaling up ultimately, like the candidate cannot be doing all the door knocking themselves. It's going to be a whole movement of no, people oh God, who no. can go to the door and relate to people on their everyday experience, right? But it's also that difference between just your identity and your relations. And so you talk about the way you relate to people. It's also about 
that difference between class and identity politics and class is a relational um, factor. It's, you know, how you relate to other classes in um, in our economic system. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly right, that what's really important is the way that you relate to people in the world as a candidate, as a person, as a worker, as a renter, you know, as an organiser, all of these things I think do make a difference to to you and your campaign. You know, it's it's a very different um, offer, isn't it, that not just because you have a personal lived experience of renting, but you're not a landlord and you don't actually have an invested mm. class interest yeah. in the housing crisis being as cooked as it are because you're literally not profiting yes. from other people who desperately need a house because you, you own multiple investment properties. You know? <laughs> yeah. Which is why you can do, you inspired like a video game talking about rental horror stories. Yes. <laughs> The look on my face when I read that email thinking it was originally a huge scam. I was like, this can't be, I'm reading this wrong. I'm reading this wrong. But no, local developers, uh, Fuzzy Ghost reached out. They originally reached out to ask my position on renters' rights and renters' advocacy. And then they kind of chucked it in here being like, oh, by the way, your uh, Twitter feed was one of the early inspirations for um, this game that is essentially going through <laughs> renter horror stories. Like you get the little spray bottle on the black mold there's bodies in the uh in the landlord's basement and it's really picking up traction that you know and there's a great <laughs> piece of uh landlord uh fragility that's kind of been following me around as a result oh my God. but you know it means you're saying something right <laughs> <laughs> So renting, yeah, I, I would say like there has been a pretty big emphasis on housing across the whole Greens, New South Wales Greens campaign. It's one of the ones that was in their balance of power demands, which I think, yeah, when it's coming out, it'll be last week, the party did their their big launch where they get, you know, get all the key candidates and the campaigns together and announce that list of seven key demands that we would be asking for to support Labor in a balance of power arrangement. So it was no new coal or gas, then unfair evictions and control rents, start a truth and treaty process, repeal anti-protest laws, scrap the public sector wage cap, end logging on public and native forests, and introduce the mandatory cashless gaming card. Do you know what the process was for deciding those? Like, was that informed by conversations on the doors? Yeah, so it's this kind of mix between the membership throughout like SDCs and our standing campaign committees uh, picking out uh, key priorities amongst the membership. That in itself is inherently been informed by, you know, our almost continual campaigning that we've been doing. Uh, we also look at, mm. you know, what Labor and the Liberal Party in New South Wales have not been doing. Like these are huge, huge mm-hmm. gaps when it comes to uh, policy at the New South Wales state level. Uh, it's probably really easy to see as well from that list. There's this huge emphasis on, you know, anti-corruption. Uh, New South Wales is kind of known as like the breeding ground for mm. uh, corruption in the country, essentially. You're talking to a Queenslander here. <laughs> yeah, that looks very true. Very. <laughs> But yeah, a lot of people even on the doors have been saying that, you know, they don't feel like the major parties are caring about their interests when they've got these corporate donors. They know that, you know, Labor and Liberal are both in the pockets of, um, you know, big developers, particularly the gambling lobby as well as a big one. And of course, fossil fuel companies. So it's, it's an interesting kind of way that we've come to this, but it, it's been informed by, you know, not just our conversations, but actually looking around and what 
advocacy groups have been calling for and been ignored about as well. And of course, when it comes to uh, truth and treaty, New South Wales is one of the only states who haven't started a treaty process with First Nations communities in their mm. state. So it's just a huge, obvious flaw in where we're at as a, as a state that, you know, you spoke to Lina Jinko a few episodes ago and she's leading that for us. And it's one of the reasons why I'm also working so hard is to make sure that she gets that third upper house yes. uh, spot so we can really push for you know, not just that voice, but get those, uh, start that process and, uh, get specific First Nations, uh, positions in Parliament. Yeah. It's funny, the list of, de- like, the list of demands for balance of power, that was also made at the same time as very clearly stating these are demands of Labor because we would not support a Liberal government. And yet Labor is still on their bullshit. Uh, distributing flyers that are saying, like, if you vote for the Greens, you risk Perite, you risk the Liberals. Labor absolutely needs these green seats, including Balmain, which is a Greens-held seat where Jeremy Parker is retiring, saying that they need that to win government, which if so, like, that's concerning, um, but it's more likely just a fucking lie. Are they doing that in Summerhill too? It's actually been really interesting. They haven't as much, but... Just because their materials haven't specifically said it, it's we're right. We border mm. on Balmain. Mm. We are getting the kind of bleed through of that narrative. Who knows yeah. why they need to use it? Apparently banning phones in schools <laughs> isn't the big policy drive that everyone was waiting for. It is quite <laughs> disappointing to see because it ultimately <laughs> looks because <laughs> it ultimately looks down on the electorate, on the voting base, thinking and tries to talk down. I think it's quite a condescending tactic. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen it work anywhere. And it actually, you know, some of the conversations I've been having, because people do bring it up, they are curious to know who we support in a balance of power situation, which of course we've made our position very, very clear. Uh, but it's kind of started to have some Labour voters, you know, who in that movable middle go, oh, well, no, I don't appreciate politics that go that way, that, you know, seek to fear monger, that seeks to work in this like deficit uh, framework when it's also just not yeah. true. And we, we saw it in Queensland. It didn't work then. People kind of ribbed on it then. People are ribbing on it now. Yeah. yeah. It's fear-mongering and also just totally divorced from the actual situation. Yeah, yeah. Apart from being a big lie, it's like, well, Terry Butler ran this as probably her number one uh, campaign tactic, Terry Butler, and she fucking she lost. So it doesn't work. So do what you want. If that's mm-hmm. really all you've got, then sad for you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the the other thing, Tom, you know, sometimes has raised this before when we rule out supporting a Liberal government, do we lose some of our negotiating power? I guess we could say that like, well, if Labor doesn't want to come to the table on any of these, then they can always send voters back to the election. Like, do you, do you think that they will actually come to the table on any of this? Is Labor going to fucking negotiate with us or are they going to be obstinate fucks? It's hard to say, but do they have much of a choice is the bigger question. So it looks like mm. we're heading towards a hung parliament situation. There are not enough liberal seats for Labor to really secure an outright majority. Uh, Dominic Perrottet is still seen as quite a um, competent individual. The, the broader electorate of New South Wales do see him as a preferred premier in many polls coming out. So look, if Labor want to form government, they're going to have to come to the table realistically. And it looks like more and more that's going to have to be, you know, with the support of the Greens in a cross-bench situation. I also want to point out as well that a lot of the policies that um, Labor uh, are coming to the election for, besides the phone bans and 
you know, stop privatization, not buy back everything, but just stop the already completed process of it. Some of their best policies are just greens policies as well. And or at least on the <laughs> spectrum of what we're trying to do, it does not, it makes them look really bad if, you know, they see us pushing them to, you know, not just ban unfair um, evictions, but actually bring in rent controls. And they're like, oh, no, no, we're going to stop at the unfair evictions, which has already received multipartisan support. Anyway, it's just going to show a huge flaw in any sort of left-wing or progressive framework they're trying to lose if they use if they don't come to the table, really. Yeah. I mean, the classic, oh, you're risking a liberal government. Well, you, if you're not prepared to negotiate with the Greens, if you think a some kind of power-sharing arrangement with the Greens is worse than running the risk of, an, of a new liberal government, then, yeah, you're really showing your hands. And, look, the whole discourse is stupid. It's never happened in terms of sending people back to the polls. It's just, as far as I can understand in Australian political history, it has literally never happened unlike in Israel where they have about five different elections every two weeks or whatever, it's just not going to happen. And obviously Labor is going to come to the table in some way um, to sort something out. Absolutely. All right. We've lost Emerald Moon. She's gone down. She's been sabotaged by the big state. Um, and so it's just uh, myself and Izzo cracking on. I had a few, last uh, few more questions about the election more broadly. Um, the beautiful New South Wales media, of course, playing a massive role, doing fantastic work. I was delighted to see that the Daily Telegraph did a front page um, spread on how no one knows who Chris Minns is. Now, I think that's true, and Chris Minns is very boring and is not cutting through. This is the Labor leader, of course. But the very funny thing about this this article is that they did a survey of 30 people in his seat of Cogra, uh, which found 18 or 60% did not recognise the man who could represent them in Parliament as Premier. Um, what's been your assessment of the the beautiful Fourth Estates treatment of the New South Wales election, is it? It's been an interesting one. I do also want to say that I actually grew up in Cogra. A lot of my friends and family are still there. Oh, right. And yeah, I can confirm none of them know who he is at all. <laughs> no clue. Not even just by name, which I was impressed. I was impressed, right. actually. Look, when it comes to the media in New South Wales, usually we, we see some really hostile treatment. It's When it comes to particularly this election, I've noticed that there's been some interesting takes, more kind of essentially printing the big headlines on major policy announcements. There really hasn't been the deep dive into whether or not uh, those policy announcements are effective. But funnily enough, the Greens have been getting quite a bit of media attention. And we actually have been getting Mm. some pretty reasonably positive attention, which pleasant surprise all round. Look, of course, it isn't without, you know, little underhanded comments, backhanded uh, slights, stuff like that. But I think it actually shows that the Greens are really being seen as a major player. Uh, I think the funniest uh, one, though, was there was an article recently about the future fund that the Liberals are putting forward. And you look at it and it looks like it's going to be a bunch of parents being like, this is a great idea. You actually read the article. And it's like, this does not help me. (laughs) This has nothing to do with me. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. I don't have $400 a year, but I'm sure it's nice for the people who are. Um, so, So look, that itself has been interesting. And look, when it comes to general coverage of this election as well. There has been this big focus is that the two major parties are essentially mirror images of each other. Uh, there hasn't yeah. really been a lot of cut through in what's actually being offered. Uh, I probably couldn't even tell you half the candidates of the, of the liberal side of things because they didn't even know them until about a week <laughs> ago. 
for those who aren't aware, there was a lot of issues around pre-selection for the Liberals in New South Wales. Many of the candidates were uh, it confirmed until ballot draw. For Summerhill itself, we didn't actually know we had a Liberal candidate until they rocked up to ballot draw and had their name read out. So it kind of shows where they're at as a party, not just their priorities. But no, an interesting kind of spot has also been social media for us. That being the kind of backdoor way to speak to people. I think particularly of younger generations aren't as tapped into traditional media. We know this to be a fact. And so our actual social media cut through has been quite interesting and has actually opened all these new eyeballs to, you know, not just our messaging, but who the Greens are in New South Wales, Mm. our ability to push change, our ability to kind of reflect people's actual needs. And I've actually found through at least my social media presence, we've that's how we've attracted a lot of our volunteers. Oh, wow. Through TikTok and stuff? Yeah, through TikTok, through Instagram. So I know there's always a big question when it comes to social media in any sort of campaigns, like does it translate to votes? I can't tell you, I can't answer that question, but I can definitely tell you that it's it's translated to people who've never done anything political before, rocking up to a door knock, rocking up oh, to wow. a train station, mm. popping in to say hi and wanting to get to know the team and what's going on. Yeah, oh, that's massive. That's great to know. All right, let's talk about these uh, these stupid majors here. The Liberal slogan is keep New South Wales moving forward. <laughs> Labor is about a fresh start for New South Wales. Do do the Greens have a slogan? What are we what are we going on? Do we have a sweet pithy little thing about whether we're we want to move forward or if we want a fresh start? Where's what's the New South Wales Greens oh, slogan God. position? <laughs> I don't even think we have a slogan. I think it's, you know, ready to be in the balance of power. But I <laughs> The slogans actually work, though. I feel like I've never seen no. one that I haven't cringed. Everyone's trying to trying to recreate the 2008 Obama, yes, we can. And no, right. I can tell you, we can't. We can't do that. Never happens. No. And they're always so generic to the point is which no one would disagree with them because, like, of course, everyone's to move forward and a fresh start would be fine, I guess. But, yeah, it's pointless. Unless it's okay. something like it's the, same the, the best one is still for the many, not the few by, by Jeremy Corbyn. I know that's a longstanding leftist phrase, but it's like a, a succinct summary of who you're about and who your kind of political enemy is, I think is you can't go past for the many, not the few, which Adam Bant did use in the 2016 state election, I believe, in his uh, federal election, rather, in um, in his local uh, seat in Melbourne. So I, I, th- I reckon we could just keep willing that out forever myself. I reckon, you know, and then it gives us recognition. Yeah. Repetition, you know, you've got to see something seven times before it sticks into your head. So seven more elections with that slogan and we're in. <laughs> then we're in, Is that baby. within the 18-year plan? <laughs> <laughs> the Greens government, yes, for sure. Um, all right, we probably don't have time to go through all these uh, big uh, policy areas. You mentioned the Future Fund from the Liberals, which does sound extraordinarily cooked. It's children under 10 are given this account with 400 bucks in it, and then if parents put in 400 bucks every year, the state government would match that up until the age of 18. Then they can use that on housing and education. And the, the, the estimates of like how big these accounts will grow is, is in like 50 grand or something. And is the idea there that those, all that money's invested in the stock market basically and the returns build up those returns for the kids? Is that the vibe? Essentially, yeah. Right. So it's okay. kind of like this public funded private um, index fund. Yes. Uh, which, yeah, privatization. When has it not worked? <laughs> Uh, and it, it does. It really is just entrenching, not just inequality, because of course, families who need it most are not going to be able to afford to put $400 uh, aside. They basically did the calculation if, you know, from a child being born to being 18, if they're in a low income household that couldn't afford to contribute and could only have that initial $400 starter, they'd end up with $1,300 
by the by the time they were 18, where, of course, if someone could put in the co-payments, uh, have those matched, uh, a family who has for an extra $400 a year or up to a 1000 you can put in the $1,000 a year. It just mm. barely matched to 400 You can end up with the, yeah, the 50 grand. And not only is that entrenched inequality, but it also doesn't do anything to fix, you know, uh, housing prices. It just means that people with money uh, have then uh, more access to money and put upward pressures on pricing. It doesn't do anything to sort housing prices. And I'm actually quite terrified in the precedent it sets for education. It's a very American style of um, having a college fund in a way and puts the onus on the individual to save up for education. The fact that education should have a cost is ridiculous to me. And it actually, I think, will make people uh, forget that we used to have free tertiary education. Yes. You know, and that is something we can still be, and I know very much at the federal level, the Greens are fighting for, you know, scrapping HEX and just Mm. having free tertiary education. So I think it does some awful psychological psyop in terms of how we want to relate to education as well. It's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's setting awful precedents. It's entrenching wealth inequality. It doesn't do anything for anyone not in 18 years time. Yes. Ironically, it's very similar to the superannuation system. So you had all these labor mm. hacks being like, this is a terrible idea. We hate this idea. This is terrible. This is no good. Anyway, super is awesome, by the way, and one of the greatest reforms of all time. And in no way replicates exactly the same problems with this kids future fund that we're talking about. Liberals evil, labor good. <laughs> It's just like, it feels like a tax dodge. Like, I don't know how to describe it. I'm like, this feels like there's a way to hide assets in some way. I don't trust it. Yeah. People get end up with multi-million dollar kids' future funds, I'm sure. Privatization, as you said, labor writing hard on ending privatization and asset recycling. Of course, there's very little left to um, sell off in New South Wales, as you mentioned before. New South Wales labor has a very big history of privatizing a whole bunch of shit when they were in uh, government previously. Um, there were documents that came out that said that the government did consider privatizing Sydney water, but Perrottet is saying, nah, we think it's bad now. We're not going to privatize anything. But I think, you know, Labor is right to say that that is, you are absolutely right to not trust that and fuck them for privatizing everything anyway. This public sector wages thing is crazy. So Labor's saying we're going to end the cap on the, uh, the government's cap on public sector wages. Okay. Good policy. But apparently during the leaders debate, Chris Minns couldn't commit to, teachers and nurses actually getting a pay rise. He said, well, we'd have to negotiate that and figure that out. So lift the cap, but whether or not public sector workers are actually going to get more money is still an open question. We as a Labor Party can't say clearly whether or not we support that. Incredible. Exactly. And that just, you know, sums it all up, doesn't it? Yeah. The fact that they are not advocating for them. They are not the workers' party anymore. We know this to be true. And I feel like every single time they open their mouths, they just kind of cement that further. So in contrast, the Greens are advocating for an immediate 15% pay rise for our nurses, healthcare staff, uh, paramedics, teachers, and then making sure that their pay rises are 2% above a CPI increase, so above inflation uh, every year after that. Saying that on the doors, people love that. Hmm. People love that. Yes, because everyone it's actually knows paying. they need more money. Yes, they're totally underpaid. Well, exactly, exactly. And look, it's kind of interesting coming from a community worker perspective because we also kind of are frontline workers as well and often get lumped into this bunch. It's often as well a highly feminized and female-dominated industry. So there's hmm. off, there's also this kind of, I guess, air of misogyny to it as well where workplaces that are dominated by women aren't seen as valuable. They're not right. seen as uh, worth paying appropriately. It's seen as work that needs to happen, but no one wants to fund it. 
a lot of the major parties, particularly Labor, are focusing on, you know, when it comes to teachers, reducing the admin burden, which is great, but that doesn't do anything. If there isn't a appropriate pay packet involved where people can actually even afford to, you know, stay in their homes, feed their families, why, why would they stay in a career that actually isn't meeting the cost of living, yeah. especially when it is a very demanding career, when it is a thank, a lot of thankless jobs, when it is a lot of, you know, unpaid hours and overtime that does, um, affect individual and worker welfare. Um, it's actually really, really disappointing to see that, you know, those commitments aren't coming through when it isn't a hard, commitment to make. And it is actually the core of ensuring that we have enough nurses, that we have enough teachers. This is how you fix the shortages. Mm. Really interesting example I like to bring up is the new Tweed Hospital. So, um, of course, amazing hospitals, love them, especially for regional areas, up in Northern Rivers. Why would a nurse work at Tweed Hospital when she can drive, what, 40 minutes across the border? And have an increased, uh, pay packet, have right. a, um, have ratio staffing. So a better work life balance. Mm. How are we supposed to compete with that realistically? So it's just kind of shows that there isn't a long term strategy in terms of bulking out those workforces. The Liberal Party even said, Oh, we're going to hire more fr- uh, frontline health staff. And it's like, that doesn't do anything to actually address the attrition rate. The fact that, you know, we're losing all this expertise. So cool. You're going to hire all these new people, but there's no one to mentor and train on the job because all these senior professionals are being pushed out are being forced out. Mm. Last one. And this is on housing. We've talked a bit about housing, but I, I could not believe this when I read Labor's policy and when it comes to making life uh, better for renters. Okay. So we've got the Liberals saying that they want to give people a choice between an annual property payment or stamp duty for properties up to $1.5 million. Now I love how they say annual property payment because they can't say land tax because like that would be increasing your tax. It's incredible. But that is good progressive policy. For a long time, people said stamp duty sucks and that you should tax land. That's a version of a wealth tax. It makes way, way more sense, even from a aggressive point of view. Labor says, no, that's a forever tax on your home, like the losers they are. And then they saying, okay, we're going to make renting better. We're going to introduce a rental commissioner, whatever the fuck that is. It seems like more bureaucracy to investigate stuff, but it's stupid. They want to reduce or abolish stamp duty in certain circumstances up to certain um, house prices, allowing pets in the rentals, a portable bond scheme, okay. And a ban of secret rent bidding. Now, when you hear that, you think, oh, they're getting rid of rent bidding. Okay, that's that's good. No, 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 my friends. The ban is on the secret nature of rental bidding, okay? So Labor's plan will mean that all rental transactions will be open and transparent. If renters want to offer more than the listed price, this is disclosed to all applicants who then have the chance to match the offer. <laughs> this is the weakest of sources. <laughs> What we do is we just put all the renters in a pit together and whoever's the last man standing gets the, uh, gets the, uh, shitty apartment riddled in mold. Uh, look, Ugh. it's absolutely abysmal. And I do want to quickly say as well on their allowing pets, they're actually not allowing pets. They're providing a form that renters can submit about pets that the landlord has to respond to. Oh so the landlord God. could still say no. If they don't respond within 21 days, it's an automatic yes, but anyone who's uh, tried to ask a landlord or real estate agent something, if the answer is no, you're getting a reply back in seconds Yes, uh, for that kind of stuff. So I just want to make that clarification. Uh, the Greens are a full blanket on yes pets, but no, uh, Labor just putting forward a, a form that a you can form. put out, a which form. look, it is utterly distressing because once again, 
these policies don't do anything in terms of like it's tinkering around the edges. It's tinkering around the edges. And I'd really like to put out there as well. I mentioned that, you know, no grounds eviction does have multipartisan support. And that's Mm. thanks to strong campaigning from the Greens, our housing spokesperson, Jenny Leong, a member for Newtown, and these amazing uh, tenants' right advocate groups uh, and Sydney Alliance as well, who've been pushing the parties on this. But I also just want to flag that a little bit of a fun fact and fun story that last year before Christmas, actually the week after Labor announced that they'd be looking to end no grounds evictions, uh, a bill was introduced uh, in the New South Wales Parliament, Lower House, by Jenny Leong, to and no grounds evictions, and um, didn't get through, despite mm. Labor saying that a few days prior that that would be their uh, approach and part of their platform in this state election. And I think that really also sums up that when it comes to renters' protections and rights, that we are a political football, that uh, we they want us as a headline, but they actually don't care about our well-being and how many people, you know, between what potentially could be a Labor government uh, where they can put that through and then get the win versus, you know, just before Christmas, it's now six, almost six months ago, how many people would have lost their lost their ha- homes essentially, mm. been kicked out of their homes because of that delay. So I think that's always a nice one I like to bring to the table when people Jesus. bring up um, Labor's approach. But look, there is nothing there to actually stop these huge rent hikes that are happening. No. You know, there's nothing there to... Uh, provide security or long-term leases to people. It, it's not uh, making a safer environment for people because we have to remember it's not just about having a place to live. It's, you know, women are staying in unsafe situations and mm. uh, violent situations because they cannot afford to leave. We're seeing older women who over 55 are our biggest group of unhoused people uh, currently they are unable to, you know, even go for a loan because they're not se- they're seen as a risky um a risk to to the bank and can't mm. secure a home loan, even if they wanted to or that was an option that would otherwise be open to them. So they are stuck renting up until into retirement. There aren't, there isn't anything to support that. You know, we're also committing to you know, stopping the sell-off of public housing, but also building more public housing as well. We've got a 50,000 uh, household long wait list currently in New South Wales for public housing. And not enough is being done to actually clear that. So that's 10 years. That's 10 years wait list mm. essentially for a two bedroom apartment, uh, in most suburbs throughout greater Sydney. And, you know, what the Greens are putting forward, of course, is making sure that, you know, 100% public housing on 100% public land as opposed to this 30% target that, uh, Labor's putting forward and committing to building 10,000, uh, homes over the net every year for the next 10 years. Mm. to actually meet this growing demand. And I know that's been a big conversation federally as well around housing. But look, this is the renters' election. That's what advocacy groups are saying it. That's what I'm calling it here now. Yeah, That is the thing that people are telling me. When they come and see me and they chat to me or any of our volunteers, that's the thing that's on people's minds. It's where I'm going to be in six months. Yeah. Uh, especially in a place like Summer Hill, it is the inner west. People really do pride themselves on being, you know, we're such a strong community. We show up for each other. That is under threat because, mm. you know, people aren't even able to stay in their own communities. One of our volunteers uh, said something really interesting. She says, you know, you have a 12-month lease. That first three months, you're still settling in. Mm. Those last three months, you're, you know, looking for a new place, packing up, seeing what to do, sitting in a state of stress and anxiety. Mm. You're only really settled for six months. So, you know, you're only living life in six-month chunks when you're a renter in Sydney. God. 
All right, the renters' election. I love that. If it's the renters' election, Green should win government, in my view. And it's because of great candidates like you. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and bearing with our technical problems, Izzo. And good luck for this last campaign. We're rooting for you on election day, okay? Thank you so much. Yeah, when this comes up, we've already opened pre-poll. So I'll be out and about getting as many people to put Green's one as possible and flipping Summerhill to Green. Yay! Thanks so much, Izzo. All the best, comrade. Syria, bye. All right, everybody, and, and, can we focus and do some goddamn music, everybody? <laughs> right, come on, Triple J, Orchestra, we've got to get in. Digestive tea. Here we go. For like a version, <laughs> this is Silver J covering the Beatles classic Yellow Submarine. <laughs> Take it away, boys. And the band begins to play. Another little cheeky call to action too. This is for Victorians. I think maybe you can't sign this petition if you're not a Victorian citizen maybe. But oh, really? I think that might be the case. But I'm sure there are other ways you can support this campaign. Basically, there is a campaign to save the Barrack Beacon housing estate from demolition. Full disclosure, my cousin is involved in this campaign. He works for a cool mm. non-profit. Uh- <laughs> Nepo baby call to action. <laughs> <laughs> it works for this very cool architecture firm that does awesome work on you know public housing projects and trying to fight back against capitalism's takeover of public space. Okay. But it's also done great work in like renovating public housing and you know empowering the tenants and residents of public housing to you know make their make the housing situation not awful and beautify their their locations. And we'd like to thank his architecture firm for making this episode of Serious Danger possible with their generous donation. So yes, thank you very much. <laughs> And you can no, support them now. Yes, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, the Barrack Beacon Housing Estate, it's in Port Melbourne and it's being knocked down thanks to the progressive socialist Andrews Labor government. Hmm. A little bit of background here. Public housing residents in Port Melbourne say they've been bullied and left traumatised after the Victorian government abruptly told them they must move out of their homes to make way for the demolition of the 40-year-old beachside Barrack Beacon Estate. They've been knocking on doors saying, hey, you're getting out, you've got to get out really quick, and this is all part of the big build. They're going to be replaced by affordable housing, um, a mix of social housing and private rentals. Oh. Yeah, weird, isn't it? And people are saying that the it's right on the beach, so, of course, the private rental stuff is probably going to be on the nice beach side and then poor people at the back. Absolutely, yeah. The government claims that 1,400 new dwellings will be built on four sites but would not comment on how many would be at Barrack Beacon. So they've just been kicked out basically. And to give you an example, the Guardian profiled this lady, Margaret, who said that she was told about the demolition of a home of 23 years through the mail. I got a knock on my door but they weren't patient enough to wait for me to get to it. She relies on mobility aids as she manages ME and chronic fatigue syndrome. She says the letter would quite literally put me into shock. So these people are getting kicked out. It's really brutal and bad. And Catherine Copsey, the Greens MP, has sponsored this petition to the Victorian Parliament. I'll put the link in the show notes. I've signed the petition. If you're in Victoria, please do the same because these people need to be treated treated way better than this. And we should have way more public housing, not just social housing, public housing mm, for public everybody. housing. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you are listening, if you listen and you're not subscribed, like if you just every week are like time to listen to my Serious Danger podcast episode and you look us up but you're not hitting that subscribe button, please hit that because I think it helps us be shown to more people. It helps spread the word about the show. It's also better for you. I don't know who are these weirdos. I know, but apparently there are people who – no, no, apparently there are people who do this. Why? I'm not shaming you if you're doing that. I'm also not shaming you but I am sad if you haven't yet given us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcast or is it – wait, is it only Apple Podcast you can review? Anyway – 
leave us a review wherever you listen and follow us on the internet. We're on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Serious Danger AU. All the info is on SeriousDangerPod.com and you can also find the link there to our Patreon if you're not yet a subscriber. Like we said at the top of the show, it's only three bucks a month or for 20 or 666 or 690, 69 if you want a funny number. Um, <laughs> whatever makes you feel good. <laughs> 368 help. billion, you know. 368 you... billion yeah. to help pay Mike, our producer, and keep the show going. That's what we rely on. We don't actually get donations from architecture firms. So yeah. please do that. Thanks, team. Bye. Bye. <laughs>